All right. Hey, welcome back to the Gopher CEO channel, where we bring you the best of CEOs, founders, entrepreneurs, and intrapreneurs telling you the stories that you just haven't heard, right? You hear these big names, these uh, social media gurus and experts, but have you heard from gentlemen and ladies that really build a real business, a six-figure, a seven-figure, eight-figure, nine-figure businesses? And these are the types of people that I wanted to have on the Gopher CEO channel. So by the way, subscribe to the channel. I have a great guest today. His name is Brad. And I, again, like I'm, I keep on bringing on all these clubhouse people that I've had uh, relationships with over the last few months, but it's, it's really just been the people I want to talk to. Like I'm having so much fun getting to know these people and, and learning from them and then having them on the go for CEO channel. So super excited to have the CEO of style nations. Let me, the man. On, let me, let me, let me correct. CFO. My wife is the CEO of style nations. So I'm, I'm CEO of other businesses, but if I didn't say that, John, she would kick my ass. All right. All right. Well, hey, we, we love intrapreneurs too. So I'll, I'll categorize you as an intrapreneur today. <laughs> so, okay. so, awesome. Awesome, brother. Well, hey, he stole the show there. It's Brad M, as he loves to say on Clubhouse. How are you, my friend? And thank you for being on the Gopher CEO channel. Um, I'm fantastic. Thank you for this opportunity. You know me. I love to speak. Um, I'm passionate about a number of things, which hopefully we'll get to. Um, the principal business that we're discussing today is Style Nations. Um, we're a commercial furniture business. Mm. We manufacture in five different countries and then bring and sell product principally into the US. It's all hospitality, commercial furniture based. We supply hotels and restaurants. That's our primary market. We'd like to specify down into boutique rest, uh, hotels. So those are ones anywhere between say 50 to 100 keys whereby we get to do the full fit out. And that's our expertise. We can go from manufacturing and designing two pieces of furniture at an affordable cost point, and we cost engineer everything, all the way through to a $2 million refurb or hotel project. Um, and we cost engineer and we're able to take the whole thing, the lobby, the furniture, the rooms, the pools, and all the common areas. So it's a pleasure to be here. My name is Brad Menarkinson. I am the CFO at Style Nations. My wife, Daniela Menarkinson, she is the CEO. I am, I've been the CEO of a number of different companies um, in the past. I'm an angel investor. I have uh, interests in Australia. I have now building, uh, building up my portfolio in the US as well, um, really through Clubhouse, which has been a great tool for me to use and to meet people like you, John. Um, and also get that validation in the marketplace coming from Australia to the US four months before COVID with the whole world lockdown, it's kind of opening up um, you know, different networks to me. And I'm super appreciative of that. But I've got to say, my driving factor, John, in doing everything I do and the driving factor in coming on your show, besides the fact that I actually do generally like you, is supporting female founders. Mm. That is at my core. And what I mean by that is there's a huge disparity in relation to VC funding for female-backed founders versus male-backed founders. The, the position has worsened. Last year, 2.8% of funds went to female founders. The year, sorry, the year before last, last year, it dipped to 2.3. This is total funds put into the marketplace by VCs. So it's a total picture. Irrespective of the numbers got worse. Now, I've got a fundamental issue with that. And the reason I've got a fundamental issue with that is I support my wife as a CEO in our business. I know sometimes I have to come in as a male voice where I really shouldn't have to because she is strong enough, but she just 
doesn't get the respect as a female. So I've got an issue with that. I've got two daughters. I want to be entrepreneurs. I don't want them getting to a VC round table and know that they got a 98% failure rate because they are female, not because of the fact that the business doesn't have validity. I think it's a generational thing. I'm there to build that out and to change that from within. That's what Clubhouse has kind of given me a platform and I'm going to keep building on that. I'm looking at different avenues to be able to support female founders. But today let's talk about Style Nations because that's kind of what I think you've brought me on. Well, look, uh, I asked Brad offline before we started this recording, hey, Brad, you've got uh, some fire to bring because I just had two incredible guests. And guess what? <laughs> Dropping the bombs right away, my man. What an incredible background of what Brad is all about. CFO of Style Nations and CEO of many other ones and great background. And look, as he said, a father of two beautiful girls. I have three of my own. Great. So I've, got are- a, I've, got a, I've got a son as well. He's just oh. lazy. I keep trying to push him and say, what are you going to do? But he's the one that will surprise <laughs> us. He says, no, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> but yeah, right. He's, he's, right. Well, he's probably the smartest out of all of us because you'll end up getting there. But yeah, no, well, I've got three. You know what? Uh, it, talent, uh, sometimes, it, it, yeah, you have to develop that work ethic because uh, talent alone will, will not get you as far as work ethic and talent. So awesome, right. awesome. Good to hear. Good to hear with the uh, two daughters and uh, one phenomenal son. So, all right. So let's get this started, right? Um Style Nations, as you shared, you know, the hospitality and restaurant furniture business, I mean, five different areas in the world that you manufacture. I mean, it's a lot to think about, right? So what was the beginning steps? Like, how did you get into the business? What were some dynamic ways that really kind of fundamentally you started to put together some of these steps to really launch Style Nations? And then we'll go from there. Okay. So the history of it is that we, my wife was involved in a family business in Australia, which was called Be Seated. Um, that business, through her parent relationship, has 30 plus years worth of factory experience and relationships, principally out of China. When we decided that she wanted to incorporate the business in the US, and that happened in 2018, and we made the decision that it was going to be at the time I was finishing up um, on another venture and we decided that we potentially might move the family to the US. So when we set up the structure in the US, we set it up as her as the 100% sole director and proprietor and president of the business. And then she started to do trade shows and get a, and the response was huge. So all of a sudden she was traveling back to the US and Australia which is a quite a distance. And mm-hmm. we could see that she was probably going to have to spend six months of the year in the US. And I just wasn't prepared to live that type of life. So we made the decision very quickly to say, okay, we've got an opportunity here. But like any opportunity, you kind of need boots on the ground. It was a startup in essence, even though it was backed by an Australian business that had been operating a long time. So those established relationships were there that we can draw on with factories in relation to the manufacturing side quality control side, because that's the biggest thing about manufacturing is that you'll send them a schematic or you'll send them a CAD drawing, they'll produce a sample, that sample will be good, it'll be shipped to you. And then you say, go make 400 of these. And then all of a sudden they arrive and they're meant to be red and they blue, right? (laughs) And then now you're sending it back and the customer's got shipping and issues and all the rest of it. So quality control is imperative in production and being able to go all the way along the line in relation to control. And that's customer service as well. That's from the first touch point a customer touches us all the way through to when we deliver the product, 
it's all about quality control against the ethos of the business as well as the production and make sure that that end product meets or beats their expectation. We know our customer service is going to be great, but at the end of the day, is it a good product? Is it value for money? Is it going to last? It's in a commercial setting, right? So people are going to be using it. Does it last? And are we going to get them as a repeat customer? You know, I don't want to have to go out and find all of these hotel groups on a continuous basis. I'd rather find a hotel group that's got a pipeline of five different hotels that are opening in the next five years, secure them down at a million dollars per hotel. And I'm laughing, right? Rather than going chump change and trying to find these two to $5,000 contracts to redo a, you know, a couple of seats in a restaurant, it's kind of not the game that we wanted to play in the US. So mm. we really got our model right. And then when we looked at the model, it wasn't only about saying, okay, we, we're hitting a need which wasn't being which wasn't being serviced in the US, meaning if you wanted to custom produce a piece of furniture and I only wanted to make three chairs, the expense on doing it just was unaffordable. So you would get those bigger hotels or those luxury restaurants that would say, okay, I'm prepared to spend $3,000 on a chair because that's the aesthetics and look, but that's not for everyone. What we were able to do because of our relationships, so we can produce three chairs with our factories, knowing that we have continuous supply through those factories and they know that we have continuous product going through them. That will produce those three chairs and it's not $3,000, it's $800. And designers like that because they can say, okay, the stock standard, we carry 4,000 SKUs, right? That's what we built out on our web, on our website. So we have a huge, huge product range. And that's why we produce in multiple different countries because each country produces something that's a little bit better than the other. So Indonesia produces wicker a little bit better than China. Uh, Vietnam, they, their wood is a little bit better. Their bamboo product is excellent. Mm. When COVID hit, we got caught because we, a lot of our supply came from Asia and all of a sudden it was like, A, the taxes on China, all of a sudden it was pushing pricing really high because the Trump government liked to tax China. So Italy became a player. And that's where we now manufacture in Poland um, and Italy because the price points aren't that much higher now than a China product with it's got duty. And all of a sudden you hear, okay, if I can have an Italian chair, or a Chinese chair in my restaurant, irrespective, most people are going to go for the Italian chair. And like you, because you're an Italian stud, people like Italian chairs. They think the quality is better when it's probably about the same, but it's got that Italian feel to it. Mm. So that's kind of where we honed in. And then we built a structure out, which was a very flat structure for the company, which is what I always wanted. I've had so many hierarchical structures and cost-heavy structures in business that it's like, you, you're really out there pushing. And for every dollar that you make, I'm now spending 90 cents to make that dollar, I'm making a 10% drop to the bottom line. And it's like, oh, I've got to turn over $10 million to make a million bucks, right? Like that's that's not a, a model that I really, uh, I'm used to it being a food and beverage background, but it's not something I wanted here. So when we formed and we structured out, it's a very flat lean structure. Our margins, we have close to a 30% drop to the bottom line mm. and we don't need to upsource and upskill to really upbuild as well. Yeah, we'll bring on resources in terms of personnel as the business continues to, please God, grow out. But the structure that we've put in place, because it's systems and operations, any business, I don't care what it is, systems and operations, get your systems right, get your operations right, 
That allows you then to employ the right people to follow those systems and operations. And then if the culture of the company is right, they will stay with you and they will produce. And that's where we're at right now. I love it. So you really kind of, you know, I did a little bit of a pull of a string and you went off, right? Uh, so super, super intense, super intense. I love that. And that's what the Gopher CEO channel is looking for, right? Uh, you know, people that are going to be watching this video really want to understand, all right, well, like, look, it's in the furniture hospitality business. You've got five different countries manufacturing for it. You know, the distinct uh, understanding of that Italy has a little bit of a different cachet than the Chinese right at this very moment and and especially because of just what's happened in the world and that's business ladies and gentlemen you start to understand like hey here's some things that you'll need to do in the marketplace to distinguish yourself so you come to America you and your wife you start to streamline this product you're not really doing a high hierarchical uh, uh, base here what are some things uh, since you had relationships uh, because of this brand that was out of Australia what were some of the ways that then you kind of established yourself with this new name, but yet similar products and, and having that background? Uh, you know, I guess, tell us a little bit about how you marketed that. You, did you ask for certain types of, uh, um, you know, meetings with these people? Like, who are you talking to the buyers? You know, those, that type of background for us. Sure. So the model that we ran with in the US, we hadn't done before. We, we have a rep base. So I don't employ any salespeople. I have reps that have across the country, so in, in all 50 states, um, they're on an agreement. They can rep our brand. They rep multiple brands. Um, they did go through a very intensive interview process with us to make sure that there was an alignment with our brand, who their clients are. So I pay them a fixed percentage. So I know every time they sell, that that's what it's going to cost me. I don't have any variable staff costs on the sales side of our company, which has worked really well for us. What's happening now is that we're getting brand recognition because of the fact it was a startup in the space under a new name and we wanted to go under a new name, so I preferred it, so did my wife. Um, we've done a lot of SEO. Um, our website is, is really optimized, but more so it's about, we've had a podcast, we're getting our product out there, we've got articles. My wife is a female entrepreneur. We have pushed that angle. She's, um, we've got her into a lot of magazines. We've built up her profile. We built up my profile. So we've really looked at all these verticals that don't cost a hell of a lot of money to get it out there. But at the end of the day, for us, what's been really powerful is that we do a fit out like in a Marriott. We do, we had one in, in Austin where we did the full hotel they had a huge, I mean, just the FF&E side for us was, you know, it was over a million dollar contract. This hotel project was, I think, around 40 million. So you can imagine the press and publicity that they put behind the launch. And then we were able to attach ourselves to it. So we got all of this press and publicity for free. Not only that, they paid me, maybe they paid me for the contract. So we looked to leverage off relationships. And because of the fact that We've got a great reputation that's building out now. We can leverage off those relationships to build the business. And it's flipping. You know, our sales a year ago, well, let's say pre-COVID, pre we were about 98% through our rep post. Now we're getting probably about 20%, we call them house accounts, because they're coming directly to us, and 80% to the rep. And I can see that that will continue to fundamentally change. And I want to get it to the point where we're probably more at a 50-50. 50% coming through our rep group, 50% direct. Now, I'm not taking business away from our reps because these are direct leads that are coming to us where they don't have established relationships with this client. If a lead comes to us and they have an established relationship with a rep, then we put it back into the rep's 
puppet because that's what they've got. That's and that's the commitment we give to them. I'm talking through that's sorry, they've got a dog in the background. I'm talking through that's never used one of our reps. Um, I don't then have to pay the, the fee for the rep, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that kind of, and I want to get to about a 50-50 model with that as we scale the business out. Well, and you know, look, you, you look at uh, percentage uh, of business, right? When you look at, let's say, AP reports and uh, NAR reports, you know, when, when you think about receivables and part of your business and trying to keep it where like at five to 10% is kind of an over-concentration once you go over 10%, you know, it's a, it's a similar aspect, like, if you're truly only relying on these reps and one of them dies, has a medical yep. issue, something happened, and all of a sudden you're like, well, where are the orders coming from? Uh, it's really genius of you to be able to do that because now, you know, you've got your mechanism, they've got their mechanism, and you really try to create this huge, you know, turnstile of things that are going on. So pretty awesome stuff. So, you know, you talked a little bit about their, you know, your approach in the marketplace, how you're marketing and kind of the way that you get out there. Uh, you talked a little bit about kind of the lineage, right, of, of how you're set up as a corporation. So tell me a little bit now, you know, what are some next steps with scaling, right? Uh, when you think about you're in the marketplace, you've established a brand over the last two years now. You, you Obviously, everybody's gone through this COVID situation. But, uh, I, you know, in my funding world, I think I've shared with you, I have a client that said to me, hey, look, 2023 is going to be unbelievable for the hospitality <laughs> furnishing business. So yeah. what are you looking at? How are you strategizing for 2023 and beyond? So it's coming down to two main things. One was we spent a lot of time over the last year and a half to refine our processes and systems to get ready for 2023 because it's starting to hit now, right? So the end half of this year is going to be a lot stronger than the first half of this year. We now, obviously, with current strain, hospitality is iffy a little bit, but I don't see what happened before. I don't see the shutdowns. And people also have now got a little bit of money in their coffers, so they will look to pipeline work and look to expense out. But you've got to be ready for it. When I say ready for it, the opportunity that's going to hit in hospitality is going to be humongous. So those businesses that are primed to be able to take that opportunity and ready to be able to deliver, because the biggest issue at the moment, John, in our industry is that we import principally, as I said, from five countries we manufacture, I might not get product into this country. I think the delay at the port at the moment is six weeks besides the sailing time, right? And a container that cost me six months ago, three and a half thousand dollars for a 20 foot container today is $13,000. So just put that on 400% increase in the shipping logistic cost and I've already costed out to the customer and sent them an invoice. I have to go back to them and say, listen, it's a variable cost for it, so there's nothing I can do. I've had to put an increase, a surcharge on it. But it's price gouging, right? Because they can get away with it at the moment. And it's really, really going to take its toll. So what we're doing to future-proof ourselves, we're now looking at American-made product. So I am heavily, heavily concentrating on local American-made. Because if you can service that need, because everybody's hearing, a, the huge costs now go to freight. B, the huge time frame to get things finished in terms of delivered to your site. If I can turn around and say, I can give you a three-week turnaround time, right? I am winning that business, irrespective of cost. Restaurants need to open up on their time. Hotels need to open up on their time. So it doesn't really matter that I'm going to be producing in the US and 
It might be 20% more expensive than what I could have got out of China, right? It's now about time frame. So we are sourcing local manufacturers in the US everywhere. In fact, I might be buying a factory next week. I'm thinking about it. Um, that's been producing for 40 years. They have the skill set to produce um, custom product. And I might just try, try and control that myself. I'm debating it. But local made is going to be where it's going to be still um, probably for the next three or four years. So local manufacturers are going to benefit hugely in this industry. Um, and that's where we target it. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, look, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you're, you're saying the same exact words that this client of mine have on the, fund, the funding side. And it's really interesting to kind of hear two different perspectives. And you guys are both from outside the country that have come to the United States and really planted your flags on what you guys are doing. So it's really, really interesting. Cool to hear. So tell me about, you know, that next step, right? Uh, you, you've got this strategy, what's going on. You've got the things that uh, and the relationships that you've been able to build you know, when we think about go for CEO, we're trying to understand like, all right, what's this day to day? Like if you take a step back, what are you thinking on a daily basis right now? What are some next steps that you're providing, you know, especially as a CFO, right? Uh, you're, you're looking at cash flow management, all the things that you need to do. How are you trying to target those things so that you can kind of be equipped and, you know, facilitate those opportunities? Um. Well, one is always going to be about cash flow management, irrespective. And yes, I have a financial background, so that helps. Um, but I preach it all the time. If you don't understand your numbers in business, irrespective, or have someone next to you that is invested with you and understands the numbers, you can be gone quicker than you know. So that's, that's the first thing that's imperative. What we're doing, where the opportunity I see it now is that we, we haven't really touched the base, the surface in the U.S., there are so many hotel chains out there and, and the move in hotels is now for these boutique hotels, which are more luxurious than what they used to be, more touch points, more customer service. And I'm actually looking to invest in that style of hotel myself as well. But what I've realized is that because we went from an Australian business dealing mainly out of Asia to delivery to a US business, which is now got Asia plus um, Italy and Poland coming in, I can fit out a hotel anywhere in the world. It doesn't have to be America, right? So now we're targeting Mexico, Canada. Once we nail down those two markets, I'll then start branching out. But if someone's got a hotel project in London, I can do it. I know how to bring product into London, right? I'll put a team in place to be able to facilitate that as well because these projects, hotel projects go for over a year. So I can put the right team in place and be able to cost that out to afford it so that I can take it to... You know, 1.5 million pound project in London. So that's kind of where we're branching out now. We've got a foothold in the US. We want to hold on to that. That is the core business. That will be 80% of our focus, right? Existing business, core business. And then we're playing a little bit in the 20% to say, okay, the new business potentially might come offshore. And that's where we're opening ourselves up. Sweet, right. I mean, you, you're really laying it out and really, you know, when you think about the things, the experience that you've had, the ways that you've been able to structure things and, you know, uh, real quick question, side note, uh, is your wife uh, and, and the way that this style nation set up, is it WB, like a woman business enterprise? It is. Okay. It is a woman, which is classified in the U.S. as minority business. Mm -hmm. um, irritates me, but yes, um, it is a minority business. It is a, it is a, she owns 100% of it. Um, and that's purposely done. Um, because of different tax benefits that you can get um, in the US because of that. The only, the only thing I discovered, which kind of sucks, is because 
we're not US citizens, irrespective, we don't actually qualify for grants in the US because you have to be oh. a US citizen to qualify for the grants. Okay. So that kind of sucks. But um, if you want to marry me and sponsor me, John, I'm open to it. <laughs> all right well uh you know maybe if i turn one day so. <laughs> awesome stuff man well well look you know uh as we kind of dwindle down the interview here uh you know we have three main questions and it really kind of goes to the go for ceo mindset right c is about client experience and some people have that end consumer client experience some people have the 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 companies that are buying the b2b side some people have buyers that they have to deal with so client experience is one employee engagement is another and operational excellence is the other. So why don't we start with client experience? What is um, Style Nations, what is their, you know, value proposition when you think about client experience? It's so, it's such an important question, right? And we have spent so much time on this and I kind of hit at it before, but I'll expand on it. We look at that client experience from the very first moment someone touches our brand all the way through to how we thank them on the exit and then how we get repeat business. We touch every point, right? But what we make sure is consistent is that every point is on brand. So at not one period of the client customer experience, A, we're not monitoring, tracking, and, and making sure that we get the data on it. But B, they are having a style nation's experience, and that means something. You know, we have an ethos in this business. We color outside the lines. We do it a little bit different. And that allows the creativity of our team and the uniqueness of our team, which is probably the next point, to come in. But we data track everything. So from the time we get a lead into our website through to the time that if you receive a piece of furniture from us, you're going to receive a gift. You're going to get a handwritten note. We're going to thank you. We're going to publicize you. We are going to be, we're going to be spreading the love because that's what our team does. We spread love, right? That's another one of our principles. We've got three core principles. So we make sure that we're in touch and it's that same brand experience irrespective of wherever you're on that sales cycle all the way through. So that answers the first one. And that really the finishing touch is probably more important than the starting touch with the consumer because people remember the finish, right? They don't remember because we've got such a long cycle for, for most of our projects. They don't remember when they put the inquiry through that they were answered by a great customer rep who was knowledgeable, was able to direct them in the right thing, and then they were facilitating an order. What they will remember is the handwritten note that is now sitting on their counter from Style Nations saying, thank you so much. We value you as a partner. Anything else we can do, you let us know. That's and awesome. that's that's the personal touch. That's critical. That's huge. That's huge. That's dropping a bomb right there. So I love it. So E is for employee engagement. I know that this corporation, you've kind of kept it linear, right? A little bit more lean and mean, uh, yeah. but it's, it facilitates a great way of doing business. So tell me a little bit about, you know, either past experience and then how kind of, even just with your vendors, like, I think that's a cool thing too. Employee engagement can mean a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So engaging the people that need to do business with you so that you could operate your business. How do you engage with them? So I'm going to tell you a story and then I'm going to talk to the points if you, if you allow me. So we had our biggest invoicing week in the company about three weeks ago, right? Since we started, which was awesome. You know what happened, John? Our staff organized a happy hour Zoom call to celebrate that fact. And they didn't invite me or my wife to it. They celebrated themselves. 
So if you want to know about having loyal customer, sorry, loyal staff, right, that are engaged and really bought into your mission purpose, and you want them to deliver, think about the power of that. They celebrated the biggest week this company's ever had. They're on salaries. They're not, they don't get a bonus because of it. They celebrated the biggest week this company has ever had, and they didn't invite us. Yeah, awesome. That is the culture that, that has really been cool. set. I mean, it's like it was goosebumps when I heard it. It's like, what? That is just incredible. No kudos. They patted each other on the back for a job well done. With our reps, what we've done really successfully, because COVID obviously has hit our industry, you can imagine, really hard. We're talking hospitality, right? And a lot of these reps all of a sudden had no business. And this is their entire business is based upon sales. So they, they just had nothing left. What we did was we went and started sourcing various lines that we could bring in that they didn't kind of have. So we were starting to build up this portfolio to them. But then we engaged with them on a continuous basis in terms of training. We would go to Italy and say, we need to do a tour of the warehouse for a product called Biliani that they've been in manufacturing forever. Couldn't get the product in the US. We secured the product. Their factory is the most unbelievable thing you ever see. Biliani opened up their factory, brought all our reps in. They took them for a tour. They explained it. They brought them in. They feel it. We've done cooking classes with our reps. So we brought in like a brilliant chef and we did online cooking classes so they can feel part of it. We sent them the ingredients. We sent them all the stuff from Style Nations. We've done art classes with our reps. One of our, one of our staff members, our key team members, is an artist. She, wrote, she ran an art class. We, we put a pack of art stuff together, sent it out to them, thanking them. So this continuous, continuous engagement with them to say, we are here. Don't worry. We are, this is what we are doing. We are here. And the mental side of it, which has been key, is to say, no, we're here to support you. So we, we're not going to forget you. And the time will come back where you're going to be incredibly busy. And guess what? When they get incredibly busy, these are multi-line reps. They don't have to represent just us, others. I can tell you who they're going to represent first. It's Star Nations because of the fact that we have been with them during the tough times as well and supported them. Such a deep, deep way to really look at it. And it's kind of like the handwritten note at the end. It's what you're doing in these tough times that really represents you and the company and, and how you've engaged your, your partners, your employees, and everybody. So really cool to hear about that party as well. That's, uh, that's pretty awesome. So uh -huh. the last one is operational excellence. You know, you talked about it and you have a lot of things that you have to juggle from, you know, supply chain to understanding, oh gosh, the ports and, you know, hey, maybe we're thinking about buying some companies in the U.S. to really kind of lessen the time and create this, all this operational excellence. So what are two or three things that uh, you could say about operational excellence that you haven't said already that really hit the point of how you bring value to the table? So what we do is this in relation to operations. We have a weekly accountability meeting with our six core people in our business. That is logistics, manufacturing, marketing, sales, and then the ones, there's two that look after the reps in the US because we split up the territory. Every one of them is set into an accountability spreadsheet, which we use Monday as a soft tool, as a tool. And we did a planning session and we set our accountabilities out for the next six months. Everybody in our company holds each other accountable to that. Once it's been agreed upon in terms of operations specifically, because you've got to plan ahead. The plan can change, which is fine, right? But the milestones don't. 
and the way that we operate doesn't, but we learn from it, but everyone holds everyone else. I am just as accountable as anybody in our business. My wife is just as accountable, which means that we have a very flat, there's no hierarchical structure. I will get called out by someone if I haven't achieved my milestone, my accountability milestone, as much as I'll call someone out. So that in terms of operations and then investing back learnings from being accountable continuously so nothing gets kind of missed. And if it gets missed, it gets picked up because there's eight people looking at that specific point on operations. And even though it might not be their job, it's reported to them every week. They hear it. So they get to learn it. And then there's cross-pollination of skill set, which is just a wonderful thing to happen as well. And that's been really powerful for us. And, and we just learn and we just implement, we learn, we implement, we learn, we implement, we learn, we implement. And it's just a never-ending story to make sure that we get the efficiencies in relation to operations down. Well, I mean, you've, you've laid down the gamut, right? And one of the things on Gopher CEO channel is we want to have you on every six to 12 months. We want to hear what Style Nations is doing. Uh, maybe you'll give us an insight also to some of the other business models that you have and all the great things that you're doing with you and your family and the business. And I know later on today, you're, you have a join up, uh, a meetup with some clubhouse people that are other great entrepreneurs, great friends. And again, showing just, you know, what it takes to really build a huge, huge opportunity uh, within itself and the way that your relationships are built out. So Brad, tell everybody how, what is the best way to get a hold of Style Nations? Where can they learn about it more online, offline? And then how do they really contact you if they want to, you know, after this video say like, Hey, I really want to do business with Brad and his team. Thanks, Sean. Um, yeah, the, the best way to find out about us is just to go to www.stylenations.com. The website, if we're on our third iteration of our website, it's fab, it's fabulous. It's got every tool in there. We build that out continuously. It's got the background for the company. It's got the background on everyone. So that's that's a really good touch point to start with our company. If you have an inquiry, you can inquire through the website. It will get answered immediately. So that's built out. If you want to get in touch with me personally, the best way is LinkedIn. My name is Bradley Menarkinson. There aren't many Bradley Menarkinsons on LinkedIn, so I'm sure you're pretty much going to find me and then connect with me. And I'm, I'm always open to opportunity. Awesome, brother. Well, hey, thank you so much for coming on the Gopher CEO channel. We're excited to have you on. And now you're part of the Gopher CEO family. So ladies and Bye. gentlemen, go ahead and like this video, share it with other people, find out what it is that it takes to really build such an incredible business. Guys like Brad are just not a dime a dozen. It's really star power. And along with his beautiful wife, who is really just the mastermind behind it too, right? So we'll hopefully next time we might have her on as well. Absolutely. Um, so excited to have you on. Thank you so much for coming on the Gopher CEO channel. And uh, we'll talk to you soon, Brad. All right. Thank you, John. My pleasure.